Turn with me to John chapter 15. Gospel of John chapter 15. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 8, but we'll be focusing on verses 2 through 8. Uh, Verses 1 through 8 and considering Christian growth. John 15, verses 1 through 8. Give attention to God's holy word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is to us better than life itself. Your word is to us the words of life, and we have gathered once again to hear your word, the words of life. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us and quicken us so that we might attend to the things that have been given to us freely in the Lord Jesus, that you would bless this time of preaching for your glory and our good. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, those of you that have been to my house will perhaps know that we have two trees in front of our house, two oak trees uh, of similar size. They're not in our yard. They're in my neighbor's yard, but our houses are so close they might as well be my trees. I have to blow the leaves and scoop the acorns. So these two trees are in front of my house, one on either side. And even though both of these trees are oak trees, Both of these trees are of similar size. They're probably of similar age. There is a vast difference between these two trees. On the right side of my house, there's a tree that has been well taken care of. I was speaking to my neighbor uh, one time, and she was telling me that maybe 10, 15 years ago, she hired a tree service to come and prune her oak tree. They took out some of the branches, and they cut off the dead limbs, and they cleaned it up. Now, 10 to 15 years later, the the tree is gorgeous. It's well-balanced, it's full, it it grows, and it looks... uh, It's a very good-looking oak tree. The tree on the left side of my house, however, it's obvious, has never been pruned. It has never really been taken care of, and it has dead limbs and dead stumps coming off of it. Uh, At one point last year, it was almost dangerous to be around that tree, Because as you might know, with trees of that size, when a dead branch falls, it can be very dangerous. And so you see, with the two trees in front of my house, we have a picture of what Christ is speaking about in this passage. 
the, the tree that was pruned and was taken care of and uh, the dead things were cut away in due season has grown more full and produces more fruit. It's a much better and healthier tree than the tree that has never been pruned. In fact, the tree that's never been pruned is uh, almost dangerous because of the dead branches that are hanging off of it. Now, you and I well know when you see a tree like this, the reason that there's dead branches attached to the tree is because on the inside, there's no connection to the trunk. Outwardly, the bark is still there. There may even be some of the the wood underneath that's connected to the trunk, but the living sap doesn't flow through that branch. And so eventually, it ceases bearing leaves, it ceases bearing acorns, and becomes a dead branch. Well, just like in the life of trees, so also in the life of the Christian, so also in the life of the church. What we see in this passage is an illustration of how Christians grow, how Christians are made more fruitful, and the source of Christian growth. And what we're going to see in this passage, not only that true Christians grow, it is inevitable that Christians will grow. But that's not the thing we're going to notice here. We're going to notice that that growth, the fruitfulness of a Christian, is what glorifies the Father. Specifically, we're going to see that God the Father is glorified by the fruitful lives of Christ's disciples. God the Father is glorified by the fruitful lives of Christ's disciples. As we look at this passage, we're going we're to notice three things. If you've ever... Uh, done some tree work, you will know this, and if you haven't done any tree work, you can speak to some of the men in the congregation who have. Taking care of trees is a lot of work. And so in this passage, we're going to see three kinds of work. First, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the Father's work among the branches. The Father's work among the the branches. In verses 5 and 6, we're going to see the Son's work in the branches. The Son's work in the branches, verses 5 and 6. And then in verses 7 and 8, we're going to see the branches' work in the means of grace. The branches' work in the means of grace, verses 7 and 8. The Father's work among the branches, the Son's work in the branches, and the branches' work in the means of grace. So we begin by looking at the Father's work among the branches. We're really paying attention to verse 2, going down to verse 8. We looked at verse 1 last week. But just remember the the context here of verse 1. Christ says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Notice that the Father, his work among the branches, is that he's looking for fruit. As the Father does his work among the branches, he's seeking fruit. 
But what are these fruits? Fruits are the standard of judgment among men. Christ said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, turn with me uh, very briefly. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits, you will know them. So among men, these fruits are the standard of judgment that Christ has given to us, but they are also the standard of judgment that God himself uses. Look at Matthew 21, 43. Matthew 21, 43. Matthew 21, 43. Christ has just, um, the, the triumphal entry has just happened. He's returned to Jerusalem for the final time, and he's delivering his final condemnation of the Jewish nation. And as he delivers this condemnation, notice what he says in verse 43. Therefore I say to you, Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The the condemnation of Christ upon the Jews as the great judge of the covenant was displayed in the fig tree. You remember the story. Christ comes into Jerusalem. The fig tree has no figs on it. And Christ says, let no one pick fruit from you ever again. And it withers from the roots at that point, uh, on the very spot. The fig tree represented Israel. And when Christ came to the Jews, he did not see the fruits of the covenant, and so they were cursed and judged. These fruits are the standard of judgment that God himself uses. Paul speaks about these fruits in Philippians 1, verse 11. He prays for the church and says, I pray that you might bear the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And of course we all know the famous passage in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. But the fruits of the Spirit are these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. More specifically, however, the fruits that Christ is speaking about in John 15 refer to our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 33. Christ is teaching and he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Notice that Christ applies this image of fruit to our words. So the fruits refers to our words. 
Notice that it also refers to our thoughts. Look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Verses 43 and 45. It's the parallel passage to what we just saw in Matthew, but there's a slight twist in this one. Luke 6, 43, a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks Notice that the category of things that come out of a man's heart is broader than what he speaks. This includes our thoughts. Think about it this way. The things that you say are the things that you thought of before you said them. The words are a reflection of the thoughts of the heart. And so the fruits that Christ is referring to refers to our words, our thoughts, but it also refers to our deeds. Keep reading in that same passage of Luke, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord? And do not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood came, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was built on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing. Notice the language. He who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. In this passage, Christ is referring to our deeds, the actual things that we do, not just our thoughts, not just our words, but also our actions. And so Christ says, the Father is seeking fruit. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the principal fruit of a Christian? What is the primary fruit that a regenerate heart produces? If you're not sure of the answer, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Remember, fruits come from the heart. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The primary fruit of a Christian is faith and repentance. That's what Paul's describing here. The regenerate heart believes in the Lord Jesus and then the mouth with the fruit of the lips confesses the Lord Jesus. That's the primary fruit of a Christian. And this is primarily what the Lord is looking for, what the Father is looking for as He moves among the branches. Returning now to John 15. There's more that could be said about fruits, which we will say later on, but just notice at this point 
the Father's work among the branches is looking for this kind of fruit, faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the Father's work involves removing and pruning. Those that bear no fruit are removed from the vine. Verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This language, a branch that does not bear fruit, refers to those that profess to believe. Look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2. A sometimes controversial passage, but I think in light of John 15, James's meaning becomes very clear. James 2, 14, we'll just read verse 14. Notice how James introduces this passage. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith? You see the emphasis that James has. He's speaking about people who claim to have faith. They merely profess the true religion without having the reality. And then James is going to go on to say, your mere profession of faith is dead if it's not joined with fruit, if it's not joined with good works, if it doesn't produce the fruits of the Spirit. And these branches are removed or taken away. The Father is also at work among branches that are fruitful. The Lord says, every branch that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. In the Greek, there's a little play on words here that's going to come up later on in the passage. The word for take away is iro. And the word for prune is kathero. There's a, there's a play on the sound of these words here that Christ is putting together. They sound very similar. Just as the words are very similar... So also in our experience, the work of the Father in removing branches and pruning branches looks very similar. You know, if you've ever done any tree work, when you prune a tree or when you remove a branch, you use the same tool. A saw, pruning shears, whatever the tool might be, you use the same kind of tool and you perform the same kind of action. They look like very similar things. The means that God uses to prune His fruitful branches and to remove unfruitful branches are trials. Psalm 119.67, the psalmist says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. Trial and affliction is what the Heavenly Father uses either to prune us or to remove us from His body. And that can look very similar. Outwardly, it may not look any different. Someone may be going through very hard times that could be the Father pruning them. That could be the Father 
pruning away all the, the dead branches and the dead leaves so that they can bear more fruit through that trial. Likewise, somebody else may be going through an equally difficult trial, and that may be how the Father is removing them from the church and from Christ. Outwardly, they look very similar. You know, the book of Hebrews says that no chastening seems pleasant. But in the end, if we are trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, think about this. Through study, we master the Bible. Through suffering, the Bible masters us. Through study, we master the Scriptures. But it is through suffering that the Scriptures master us. That's what Christ is describing when the Father prunes His fruitful branches. Now in verse 3, Christ now describes what a fruitful branch is. He he gives a description now in verses 3 and 4. First, fruitful branches are united to Christ by faith. Look at verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. I mentioned there's a play on words here. Take away is iro, prune is kathero, and clean is katharos, the word he uses for the branches that are clean. Notice also they are clean through Christ's work. Look at what he says. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. The word produces faith. Ephesians 1.13, Romans 10.17. Faith comes by the word of God. Uh, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when Christ says, I've spoken the word to you, I have given you faith. You are already united to me. You are in principle a fruitful vine because you're connected to the trunk. Now because of this, verse 4, Christ now goes on and describes how branches bear fruit. Look at what he says. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There's an exhortation here to abide in Christ and for him to abide in us. You see, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and being united to him in our conversion is not where things stop. Our walk with Christ is to be a continual, mutual communion throughout all of our lives. This is a mutual union, a very close and vital union, even closer than the union between a vine and a branch. If you've ever looked at a tree, it's often hard to tell. Where does the trunk stop and the branch begin? Where would you draw that line? It's sometimes hard to discern where the difference is. That's the kind of union that Christ is speaking about. It's that close and that intimate. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we have done in the body. Westminster Confession 33.1 They describe judgment, the final judgment, as a judgment upon our works. The gospel promise is not that you won't be judged. 
The gospel does not promise that you won't be judged. God's final judgment is, is the inevitable reality. Nothing will change that. When Adam ate the fruit, judgment day was as certain as death and taxes. Nothing can change that day. The gospel does not promise to change that day. The gospel promise is that in Christ, by abiding in Him and bearing the fruits that He produces, you will be able to withstand that judgment. You will be able to bear up when the Father comes to inspect. But note, note very carefully, standing on judgment day is not only having the right confession. You must also have a fruitful life that matches that confession. There's a very false idea that goes around in the church that judgment day for the Christian is only going to be God looking at your life and us responding saying, it is Christ's righteousness and that's it. And that if you have the right confession on judgment day, that's all that's going to happen. That's not what the New Testament teaches. That's not what Christ is teaching here. Christ is teaching judgment day will be based upon works. And if your works are going to stand, they have to be the works of Christ. They have to be the fruits that Christ produces. You must have a fruitful life that matches that confession. Now, what are we supposed to do in light of this? We are to judge ourselves now and repent and bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. You remember how John the Baptist preached to the Pharisees? They came to his baptism of repentance. And John the Baptist told them, he said, Brood of vipers, who told you to flee the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. That is what we are to do so that we would not be destroyed with the wicked. This is what Christ is warning us about. He's telling us what the work of the Father is. As the Father moves among the branches, He's looking for one thing. The fruits of righteousness. That's what we are to produce through union with Christ. Now I mentioned, these are the fruits of Christ. These are not the fruits that you and I produce on our own. The message is not that as so many dead branches scattered in my yard somehow produce acorns. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God picks you up a dead branch, gives you life, grafts you into the tree of Christ, and through that union, you now produce acorns. And Christ is the one who produces it in you. And now in verses 5 and 6, he's going to tell us how he does that. The sons work in the branches. Notice verse 5. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He repeats the exhortation from the prior verse. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. He repeats the teaching of verse 1. I am the true vine. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Repetition is the mother of memory. The Bible often repeats the most important lessons constantly 
because we need them ingrained in our souls. Christ repeats the lesson here in very short order. He is the vine. We need to be taught this lesson daily, don't we? How often has it been, maybe your experience is like mine, how often have we wandered from the Lord in our thoughts or our prayers? How often have we found that, that when we've done this, we neglect the scriptures for a couple days, maybe a week, maybe a month, heaven forbid? We, we neglect the means of grace, and we find that our hearts grow cold towards him. We find that the things of God have no joy for us like they once did. This often happens when we gain something good in our lives. We get some victory over sin. We may get the promotion, the raise, the paycheck. We may get the diagnosis that we wanted. It's not cancer. It's benign. Something good happens and we become elated. And we become careless. And we grow fat and happy and content and complacent and negligent and hardened and scornful and eventually if we don't repent we fall away have you ever experienced that I've experienced it more than I'd like to admit when I wander from the Lord I notice that my fruits start withering on the vine my graces start becoming dimmer when I'm not in communion with him notice that Christ also repeats the judgment upon the fruitless branches Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Notice the change, however. There's a, there's a little twist here that Christ puts on the doctrine. In verse 6, he changes it a little bit. Earlier on, in verse uh, 2, he says, branches that are unfruitful are removed and cast away. Now in verse 6, he says, branches that do not abide in Christ. He moves from the effect to the cause. He moves from the, the lack of fruit to the reason that there is no fruit, failing to abide in Christ. You cannot staple oranges to an apple tree and make it an orange tree. You have to change the tree into an orange tree and then it will produce oranges. Often, however, this is how we look at our good works. We, we're convicted of some sin. We, we find ourselves in a spot we don't want to be in. And, and we realize that I have wandered from the Lord and we start stapling oranges to our souls. Trying to produce more outward good works without dealing with the root of the matter. If I just produce some obedience from my dead heart, then I will be a better person. You might as well try to squeeze oil from a rock. You might as well try to squeeze oil from a rock as trying to obey Christ without communing with Christ. There's also very good doctrine here 
for our repentance. Are you convicted of sin? Is there something going on in your life that needs to be changed? Then the answer is for you to go back to Christ. You see, the conviction of our sins is not meant to drive us away from Christ. When God convicts us of our sins, it's meant to lead us back to Christ. So if there are issues in your life, the first thing you need to do, the primary thing to do, and maybe the only thing you need to do, is repent and return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ says, it's the ones who don't abide in me that are cast into the fire. And so when we are convicted, we are to pray. We are to go to the Word. We are to fast, if that's necessary. We are to seek the Lord while He may be found. Paul says to the Corinthian church, today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to seek the Lord. Not tomorrow, not later tonight, not next week, not next year. Today is the day to seek the Lord. And as Paul says in many places, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He goes on in verse 6 to speak about the danger of not abiding in Christ. Look at what he says. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. This is a reference, of course, to hellfire. This is a reference to the final judgment. Paul writes this way in Romans 2, 8 and 9. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. In different places in the gospel, Christ speaks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. He speaks about being cast out into the outer darkness. He speaks about there being shame and indignation upon your head forever if you fail to abide in Christ. That's what it means to be cast into the fire and burned. Have you ever felt ashamed of your sins? You ever, you ever felt convicted and ashamed and maybe you've done the worldly thing and tried to hide those sins and just uh, hoping that time would heal all things, not confessing, not repenting. If you've ever felt shame for your sins now, if you do not repent and turn to Christ, your shame will grow and grow and grow for all eternity. It will be like the Chinese water torture. You know what the Chinese water torture is? They would take a bucket of ice-cold water, strap you to a chair underneath it, and drip, drip, drip as you slowly go insane. That's what hell will be like for those who do not repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are withered and they gather them and cast them out and are burned. As I said before, I will say it again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things that are done in, his, in the body 
according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, I trust also we are made manifest in your consciences. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how to describe the terror of the Lord. Nobody has experienced the full wrath of God in this life. Even that the, the poor, well, I won't say that, but nobody has experienced the wrath of God in this life except the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to be reconciled to Christ. Well, we've seen the Father's work among the branches. We've seen the Son's work in the branches. He's the one that produces the fruit. Now in verses 7 and 8, He gives us the branches' work in the means of grace. Verse 7, Christ now teaches the way to abide in Him. You know, I think, brothers and sisters, this is really the great insight of the Reformed faith. In Westminster Confession, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 153, the divines very brilliantly tell us, what does God require of us to escape His wrath and curse? What must we do so that we are not burned up with all the other dry branches? Repent, believe, and diligently use all the outward means whereby Christ communicates the benefits of His mediation to us. That's what Christ deals with now in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, he begins teaching us, we abide in Christ through a diligent use of the means of grace. I think sometimes we have an inflated view of our own spirituality. I know I do. And this is proved by the feebleness of our devotions. The slim knowledge we have of our Bibles. The sporadic nature of our prayers. We neglect the means of grace because deep down we don't think we need them. We think we don't need them because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But Christ reminds us that it is only through the means of grace that we abide in Him and He in us. Notice what He says in verse 7. Verse 4, He said, Abide in Me and I in you. Verse 5, He that abides in Me and I in him. Verse 6, If a man abide not in Me, and now notice the change in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. He draws a close parallel between himself and the word. It is through the word that Christ abides in us. Brothers and sisters, let me commend to you the love of God towards you and the grace and the simplicity that he has made the Christian life. The Christian life is so painfully simple. Repent, believe, pray, study. And Christ will do the work in you. Repent, believe, and commune with Christ, and Christ will do the work in you. Repent, believe, and be united to Christ, abide in Christ, and He will do the work. He will produce the fruit. That's what Christ is saying in this passage. 
And it's this simple means of grace that He has appointed by which we abide in Him. If my words abide in you. Now there is a distinction we have to keep in mind here. Notice that He says, if my words abide in you. You know what the word abide means? It means to dwell. It means to take up residence. You know, when we bought my house, um, our house was united and those that it was united with were enjoying sweet communion in my house. It was full of mice. And they had taken up their abode in my house. And it was quite some effort to get them out of my house. So abiding means that you take up residence. You make your home in that house. Christ says, my words abiding in you. It is not enough to know some of the word. There must be a fullness, a continual fullness of the Word in our hearts and minds. Paul says in Colossians 3, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you with all wisdom. Let the Word of Christ fill your hearts. Let the Word of Christ fill your minds. And it is through this fullness of the Word that He will abide in you. There must also be a conscious abiding Not in the book, but in the presence of the living Christ. Brothers and sisters, understand, we are not a religion of a book alone. We are a religion of a book that points us to the living Christ, who lives and moves among us. We must, through the word, abide in Him. This is a mystical union and it is only done by faith. I can't really describe this to you. I can only repeat the words that are given to me in the scriptures. But this union with Christ by faith, this living mystical union that Paul describes in Ephesians 5, that we are of His flesh and of His bones, is so necessary. It is the foundation of all Christian experience. And those who have experienced it know what I'm speaking of. Uniting with Christ through the means of grace is the basis of everything we do as a Christian. For without me, you can do nothing. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, so also you cannot do anything without me. Knowledge of Christ through the Bible is vain if it does not produce a knowledge of Christ in our lived experience. That's what Christ is speaking about here. Abiding in Him through the means of grace. Well, there's not only the Word, there's also the prayer. Look at what He says in the second half of verse 7. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Notice that the prayer is a result of the abiding. Earlier on, he said fruit was the result of the abiding. Now he says prayer is the result of the abiding. What does that teach us? Prayer is one of the primary fruits. Calling out to God in prayer is one of the primary fruits of union with Christ. I love what St. Augustine said in the Confessions. He said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Tell me to do whatever you want me to do. 
but along with it, grant me the grace to do it because I cannot do it in myself. This desire that Christ is speaking about needs to be understood by the context. What should one desire in light of this context? What should we desire in light of the fact that Christ says he's the vine, we are the branches? What should we desire in light of the fact that he says the Father is removing fruitless branches? What should we desire in light of the reality of eternal judgment? We should desire fruit. We should desire the fruits of the Spirit. We should desire the fruits of righteousness. So what Christ is describing is not anything we can imagine. He's describing the desire of holiness. Just as he said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who weep, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who desire the fruits of righteousness, for they shall be made fruitful. That's what Christ is saying. I fear, though, many times we're more akin to the rich man in Luke 12. Christ speaks the parable in Luke 12. He says, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room to bestow my fruits. Notice the language. It's not an accident. And he said, this I will do, I will pull down my barns, I will build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Brothers and sisters, we live in a generation that thinks the way the rich man thinks. My ground produced much fruit, I'm going to build barns, I'm going to enter my retirement, and I'm going to play golf. Take your ease, you have many goods laid up for many years, there's nothing to worry about. And then the Lord comes to that man and says, Fool, your soul is required of you. Now what are you going to do? And Christ says, such are all those who are not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? To be rich toward God means to produce fruit. To be rich toward God is to see that being moral is more valuable than being moneyed. Laying up treasure in heaven is what we ought to be concerned about. Because on Judgment Day... That's all we'll have, is the treasures we've laid up with Christ. Finally, thank you for your patience. Finally, in verse 8, Christ tells us, this is what glorifies the Father. Look at what he says in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. What glorifies the Father are holy lives full of good fruits. This is also what makes a true disciple, one who produces the fruits of the kingdom rather than talking about the fruits of the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I want to just leave you with this idea because I know in our tradition, 
it's, it's easy to miss this. Our tradition places a high emphasis on knowledge and a low emphasis on life. But our tradition in many ways can be like the Pharisees' tradition. If we just know more of the scriptures, if we just learn more of what God has said, if we just learn more theology, that's what God wants. That's what glorifies God. No, it's not. What glorifies God are fruitful lives bearing fruit through the Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out. That's what the Father is seeking. That's what the Father is looking for. You know, the Reformed Scholastics, one of my favorite generations of the church, the generation of men who wrote Westminster, they used to speak about theology, and they said, theology is both knowledge and practice. To be a true theologian means that you know and you live. They said if you had knowledge but no life, you're just a philosopher. You're not a theologian. Likewise, that's what Christ is teaching us here. That's what the psalmist teaches us in Psalm 1. Just listen to Psalm 1 as we close this Lord's Day. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Christ's words abiding in him. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, notice carefully, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Why? Because they don't produce fruit. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these great reminders in this passage that you are seeking fruit. And so we pray, Lord, that you would produce in us the fruits of righteousness, beginning with faith and repentance. That we would no longer trust in ourselves, but we would trust in Christ, and we would turn from our ungodliness and from the the unrighteousness in which we have lived, and that we would patiently and diligently bring forth the fruits of the Spirit, which are by Jesus Christ. And we ask you to do this for his sake. Amen.